0: Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe
1: to Extradition, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Paken, And I'm John Michael McGrath. A packed show today on the pod,
0: the results are in. We'll break down what we've learned from this round of municipal elections. Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark unveils the government's next big housing plan, and it's a doozy. And were they or weren't they? Officials at the Emergencies Act inquiry say they've invited Doug
1: Ford and Sylvia Jones on numerous occasions to testify, but bizarrely, the Premier and his deputy deny that and are now trying to fight that call to testify.
0: Say what? It's Wednesday, October 26th, 2022, so let's get to it.
1: Well, here we are, JMM. We are taping this on a Tuesday afternoon, the day after the municipal elections. Um, I stayed up way too late watching returns last night. Did you as
0: well? Oh, I personally hold uh, the cities of Hamilton and Vaughan responsible for my (laughs) lack of sleep. Those results came in very, very late relative to uh, other cities around Ontario.
1: Very late and very, very tight races, and we'll get into detail about those and others as we continue on here. But first, as has become a bit of a custom here, we want to do a shout out to a listener. Someone named Andrew wrote in to ask about a column that you, JMM, wrote about e bikes and here is what he had to say. I read John's column on e-bike adoption, and one thing that came to mind for me was the difference in government incentives around North America regarding e-bikes and electric automobile subsidies. In the case of e-bikes, there are almost none that I'm aware of, despite the automobile EV subsidy being in many cases more than the total cost of an e-bike. Do you think that ideas of fairness play into this, i.e., people don't like thinking someone else gets something for free? Sounds like he's uh, inquiring from you, J.M.M., about whether or not we need some incentives for e-bikes. What do you think?
0: Well, I should say that uh, for context for our listeners. I wrote a column at TVO.org about uh, certain experts at at, uh, Ontario University arguing that uh, incentivizing the use of e-bikes would be good for public health, it would be good for uh, personal health, it would be good for the environment and energy use and a bunch of things. Uh, But to Andrew's question, I I have to say the irony here is that uh, at least in this respect, the Ford government is actually one of the most consistent jurisdictions in North America. Uh, They got rid of incentives for electric cars early in their mandate, never looked back on that decision, at least not so far. uh, And they also don't have any incentives for e-bikes. As Andrew alludes to, uh, that's at least more consistent than some governments that have really generous incentives for cars and no uh, incentives or no substantial incentives for e-bikes. You are starting to see uh, some incentives work their way into public policy. Uh, Mostly, I've seen them at the very local level, like cities... uh, offering incentives for uh, individuals to either uh, uh, rent them cheaply or to buy them, but uh, certainly nothing like the uh, largesse that is offered for uh, electric car buyers. I
1: used to have a high school teacher who, when I would make repeated mistakes, would say, in an effort to be constructive, he would say, well, at least you're being consistent in your ignorance. Do you think the (laughs) province is being consistent in its ignorance?
0: Well, you know... Yes, I guess is the short answer. <laughs> I, I think everybody acknowledges, and and the Ford government acknowledges that climate policy is going to require us to move people to uh, electric forms of transportation. Uh, eventually, the Ford government is very enthusiastic about landing those car making jobs and the jobs in like the lithium mining sector and the the strategic minerals sector. They very much want those jobs. They are totally uninterested in the question of whether individual households buy electric cars uh, in Ontario. Eventually, they might get more interested with that. Uh, You know, it's going to have a big impact on electricity planning policy. But that is a, a broader question than the one Andrew was asking. Indeed. But we thank Andrew for writing in and provoking a little discussion
1: between the two of us. And with that, on with the podcast. And here comes issue one. That was a birthday song for Andrea Horvath from her supporters as she squeaked a narrow victory in to become the first female mayor of Hamilton. That happened late Monday night, might have been early Tuesday morning by the time they actually finally got heard from every single polling station in the city. Yes, Municipal Election Day was
0: Horvath's 60th birthday. So that was a pretty good birthday present, I'd say. For week four and the final week of our Civics Month programming here, uh, it only makes logical sense to wrap up with a recap of how the province voted. Uh, Of course, this is voting for the second time this year. Uh, We are going to start this by zooming through some of the major races around the province. So uh, bear with us a bit. We are going to uh, start with the closest margins, uh, kicking it off uh, with Horvath. And I will, of course, defer to our senior Hamilton correspondent. <laughs> that would be me. And yes, and I and I have been beating
1: the drum on this Hamilton mayor's race, uh, not just because I'm from Hamilton, but also because I think it was the best mayor's race in the whole province. I mean, it it, it really featured everything. You had the former NDP leader, Andrea Horvath. You had a young man in Keenan Loomis, the former head of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, who had been campaigning for seven months. Uh, in fact, long before Horvath got into the race. And you had the former mayor, Bob Rattina, who also uh, threw his hat into the ring one more time at the age of 78. And again, just past midnight, once all the votes were in, 59,216 for Horvath, 59,216 to 57,553 for Loomis, 57,553. So, so close. I don't know why, but I always tend to sympathize with the losers on election night. And i got to confess, as good as one could feel for Andrea Horvath at the fact that she got to experience some victory after a very tough provincial election fight, uh, I did feel somewhat bad for Keenan Loomis, uh, who had really uh, you know, put a lot of good issues forward and had run a very long, good campaign and yet just fell a little bit short at the end there.
0: And you could have so easily felt the other way around. I mean, with the results that close, you could have felt uh, a, a real... Uh, pit in your stomach. And I think at one point in the night I did, uh, on Andrew Horvath's behalf, because she did leave uh, a provincial career where she was, she could have at least continued as an MPP at Queen's Park, and she left that to uh, run for mayor. And, and had she lost, that would have been sad in its own way. I
1: think you're exactly right about that. You know, it's one thing to lose by by 100,000 votes. There's something actually easier about losing by 100,000 votes, but to lose by such a narrow margin, one and a half points, I think, was the margin at the end of the day, Uh, that's tough. Let's stay with close races here and go north of the capital city to Vaughan in York Region, where former Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca also won his race and also by a razor-thin margin. Uh, Again, called very late in the evening. Stephen Del Duca, just uh, short of 22,700 votes. Sandra Young-Racco, 21,848 votes. If you look at percentages, it's 38% to 36.6%. I mean, again, razor thin.
0: I have to say a bit of a a historical perspective here. Uh, Sandra Young-Racco has a history of really close races. In 2014, she was the liberal candidate uh, in the riding of Thornhill. She ran against Gila Marto, and it was so close that they actually asked for a recount for whatever reason. uh, Poor Sandra Young-Racco keeps getting these these incredibly uh, tight election results, and she keeps, unfortunately for her, uh, being on on the losing end of them as she was last night in Vaughan. There were also uh, former provincial politicians who who won other municipal seats last night. Uh, In Peterborough, former Liberal MPP Jeff Leal will be the new mayor there. In Markham, former Liberal Michael Chan will be a regional councillor. Gilles Marto, she uh, is going to be a councillor in Vaughan. Uh, she was first elected as a progressive conservative uh, in 2013, I believe, uh, but had a, a bit of a, let's just call it a falling out with the party, did not run again in 2022, but she is staying in the business of politics at the municipal level. Now,
1: let's shift to so-called open mayoral races, as in ones that did not feature incumbents running. And for that, we start with the nation's capital. Former broadcaster Mark Sutcliffe will be the mayor of the nation's capital, defeating Catherine McKenney and replacing Jim Watson there. Uh, Watson, a um, multi-term mayor, was the mayor, then went to provincial politics, then went back to the nation's capital as the mayor. Uh, he's standing down now. Catherine McKenney, you know what? This was a head-scratcher in some respects because she was polling very well uh, right up to Election Day. Uh, McKenney was a, a progressive champion, a staunch convoy critic. Uh, I, I saw numbers t- uh, just before Election Day showing McKenney with a four point lead. I think that was the last poll published before Election Day. In the end, it wasn't even that close at all. Mark Sutcliffe won with 51% of the vote, McKenney well back at 38. Makes you wonder if the poll
0: was bad or McKinney just had difficulty getting the vote out or who knows what. One other quick point about Ottawa, Uh, Bob Shirelli, also former mayor, was also running and uh, came in a distant third. Like Bob Bertina, an older man, I believe Shirelli's in his 80s, I think we might just be seeing a bit of a generational shift happening uh, among local politics uh, in Ontario.
1: I think Bob Rutina would have been very unhappy with the final number that he got last night. And Mr. Shirelli, I think, would be in the same camp. I think, what was his final total? About 5% of the total vote cast, something like that? Something like that. A tough night for him. Let's go uh, west from Ottawa to Barrie. The new mayor in Barrie will be Alex Nuttall. He's a former conservative MP and a local councillor. And um, he fills in the vacancy there because Jeff Lehman, the former mayor, uh, opted not to run again. He ran in the last provincial election. Ultimately unsuccessful, but got very close to winning a provincial seat at Queen's Park. Anyway, Alex Nuttall,
0: the new mayor of Barrie, Ontario. A lot of incumbents around the GTA won their re-elections handily, uh, starting, of course, with John Tory in Toronto, uh, who won with 62% of the vote. Other incumbents who were re-elected include Bonnie Crombie in Mississauga, who won nearly 80% of the vote there, Patrick Brown in Brampton, who easily won by a more than 2-1 to margin over Nikki Kaur in a closely watched race, Frank Scarpitti in Markham, and Marianne Meadward in Burr. Arlington all won with sizable margins.
1: Now, there were some mayors, of course, who did not win by sizable margins. There were some other squeakers as well. Let's go to Oakville. Where Mayor Rob Burton squeaked through with less than a thousand vote lead on his rival, Julia Hanna. In Milton, Canada's longest serving mayor, Gordon Krantz, narrowly beat out challenger Zishan Hamid, and that was also by fewer than a thousand votes. And how about this? Krantz has now been in municipal politics for eight terms as a councillor and 13 terms as a mayor. He's been the mayor since 1980. He's 85 years old. So, where age may have been a problem for Britina and Shirelli, it clearly was not for Krantz, he squeaked back
0: in this time round. Meanwhile, in the southwest, the winning streak for incumbents continues with Drew Dilkins winning another term in Windsor. And in London, there was an open race for mayor, and that was won by Josh Morgan, the former deputy mayor.
1: Let's check in the northern part of the province, north of the French River. We've got a few new faces up there as well in Timmins, Sudbury, and the Sioux. They've all got new mayors. Uh, If you were with us over the last couple of weeks, you will remember we had an interview with the outgoing mayor of Sault Ste. Marie, Christian Provenzano. Uh, He talked back then about why he opted not to run again. In any event, there was a vacancy, and he will be replaced by Matthew Shoemaker, local lawyer, big history buff, actually. He's a big fan of, uh, believe it or not, former Premier William Hurst, uh, who is from Sault Ste. Marie originally, and I remember the last time I went to Sault Ste. Marie, Mr. Shoemaker, now his honor, Matthew Shoemaker, uh, gave me a tour of the Sioux and insisted I go see the home where Hurst lived when he grew up in uh, Sault Ste. Marie. So he's a history nerd like us, and he is now the mayor there. Sudbury's new mayor is the former MP, Paul Lefebvre. He was a former Liberal MP there. And in Timmins, Councillor Michelle Boileau gets promoted.
0: She's now the mayor in Timmins, Ontario. And in Thunder Bay, Ken Boschkoff is mayor once again. Uh, Regular listeners may also remember Holly Govan from Elevate NWO joined us for week two of Civics Month programming when we discussed how municipalities can best approach uh, mental health and addictions challenges. Uh, Holly had mentioned her vote would be for Gary Mack. Uh, Boschkoff previously held the office of Mayor from 1997 to 2003. Then he had a career in federal politics. Then he ran again municipally for council in 2010. You know, the the wall is not very strong between the the different orders of government. Uh, He is now back in the mayor's office, perhaps not exactly a a new face, but new to some of our listeners and perhaps new to some voters in Thunder Bay. And interestingly enough, he seems
1: to have been able to withstand, if we can call it a trend, that uh, Shirelli and Bertina were not able to withstand. They were former mayors who were trying to make a comeback. So was Ken Boshkov. In his case, it worked. So those are some of the major results from around the province. And JMM, speaking of trends, do we discern any others here?
0: Well, it's almost uh, obvious to say at this point, but Ontario municipal elections tend to be kind to incumbents, and this year was no exception. Uh, while there were some close races, and we've talked about some of those, I can't think of a a major incumbent mayor who lost their re-election bid. Uh, there's there's a handful of councillors around the GTA that I know uh, did not get re-elected, but not frankly even that many. You know, the, the, we mentioned the Brampton mayoral race, uh, which I was paying a, a lot of attention to because uh, let's just say. (laughs) The grudge match of Conservative Party politics uh, really made it uh, an interesting question whether the incumbency bias in municipal politics could be overcome. But even then, uh, Patrick Brown uh, did not have a terribly difficult time fending off a challenge for, that was backed by people like uh, Nick Kuvallis, a conservative pollster, or a liberal consultant, Marcel Weeder, just turned out to be a bit of a non-event. Well, the bigger story, I think, from election night is the turnout. And let's face it,
1: turnout was dismal. I mean, we are accustomed to seeing some low numbers in municipal races, but the numbers from last night or two nights ago, I guess, are pretty shocking. Uh, Under 30 percent turnout in the capital city, Toronto, under 30 percent in Brampton, 24 percent turnout in Mississauga, 21 percent turnout in Vaughan, 27 percent turnout. And there was a good mayor's race in Vaughan. So I'm not sure why the number was so low. Uh, Things were better in Ottawa, 43% turnout, but that's no doubt because there was a good mayor's race there, unlike all the other examples I just gave, save and except for Vaughan. Even in my hometown of Hamilton, only 35% of eligible voters cast a ballot, and as I suggested earlier, I thought that was the best mayor's race in the province. But you're not taking that personally, I hope. (laughs) Uh, I had nothing to do with it. Don't look at me.
0: You know... (laughs) I, I always have this question in my mind when you see uh, these uh, low turnout numbers, and of course, we have unfortunately seen uh, low turnout at other levels of government as well, uh, both provincially and federally, uh, whether this is uh, a sign of disillusionment, whether this is a sign of contentment even, you know, if people don't feel like there's a need for a dramatic change, uh, maybe it's okay that people are staying home. Certainly, you know, I covered the Rob Ford years at uh, Toronto City Council and 2014, when there was the debate about whether Rob Ford should be re-elected or not, that was a really high turnout election, and uh, as it turned out, the late mayor did not make it all the way to election day, but that was a whole other thing, but it was a very high turnout election. People were super engaged, but I don't think anybody would argue that we want to repeat the years of 2010 through 2014 in Toronto. So maybe it's not all bad, but gosh, it feels like I'm reaching for a positive explanation there.
1: Well, and I understand that. And, and, you know, it's not necessarily a case I would suggest of, you know, disillusionment or contentment. It can be both at the same time. I think there's some people who, uh, let's just take the capital city, who may not have been thrilled with the options they had in who was running for mayor of the city. uh, But at the same time, they weren't prepared to throw John Tory out. Um, if you look at the last many, many mayors who've been elected in the city of Toronto, they all have considerable political experience. And the fact of the matter is all of the people who are running against John Tory did not. And in some cases, some of them had none. And, you know, I'm not sure that the mayor of Toronto was sort of an entry-level job in politics, but there were people who were running for that job for the first time ever as their entry into politics. Is there considerable disillusionment out there about the ability of governments across the province to... As they say, put the puck in the net. Yeah, I think there is. I mean, you can't help but walk, drive, cycle, whatever, make your way around uh, the, the cities or even the rural municipalities of the province without seeing things that aren't working as well as they should have. And JMM, we're talking about big stuff like getting LRTs built on time and on budget or little stuff like getting parks open and water fountains working. Uh, So, yeah, I don't deny there's a lot of disillusionment and unhappiness out there, Uh, but we have to. I agree with you. I don't think you can paint a picture of complete doom and gloom. We have to acknowledge that uh, even though his vote is down significantly from four years ago, A lot of people did bother to come out and vote for John Tory, even though they knew he was going to win. It wasn't going to be a contest, but they put him back in anyway for his third term. And I've got a piece I've got to call him up on TVO.org about now that he is in what he says will be his last term. Uh, what does Mr. Tory intend to do with his political capital now that he doesn't have to worry about running for re-election? Is he actually going to get much more ambitious and much bolder in the way he does things, or will it be more steady as she goes? Um, we shall see. It'll be a, a story worth watching, I'd suggest. Here comes issue two. We need to stop doing things that aren't working. We need to start doing things that... That gets shovels in the ground faster. That's what we're doing. That's the plan. Thank you so much.
0: That was Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark with the announcement that the uh, provincial and municipal elections are now behind us and the government is finally unveiling their latest housing plan. Uh, We are recording this just shortly after I came out of the uh, technical briefing for this plan so I will not be able to cover everything and so just apologies in advance uh, for that. So we're just going to go through uh, some of the highlights here. Like previous plans by this government, the focus is overwhelmingly on getting more uh, privately built homes to market uh, there are some measures to encourage below market rentals instead of exclusively the the market rate condos that have dominated in places like Toronto the government is giving greater permissions to build in uh, what is we generally called gentle density in existing homes uh, people who own their homes will be allowed to add units either like a basement or perhaps like an attic apartment uh, potentially both they could have up to three units uh, in a home. Uh, The government is not projecting that this is going to actually add a ton of new housing, maybe 50,000 units over a decade. They uh, are instead setting a target of 1.5 million homes uh, over the next decade. That is a number that corresponds with other estimates we have seen from places like the Smart Prosperity Institute, that uh, say that's how many homes we need to ease the housing shortage in Ontario. Uh, municipalities are going to have to take uh, housing pledges. Basically, the the ministry is going to assign uh, housing targets to them based on that 1.5 million number. Uh, in the city of Toronto, it's going to be 285,000 uh, homes by 2031. The problem with these pledges is there's there's no teeth yet to this target there's no do this or else. A lot of concerns about what the government is announcing in terms of conservation authorities. These are uh, environmental uh, bodies by the government that are intended to uh, protect floodlands and wetlands and and other environmentally sensitive areas. They are now going to be substantially more restricted in in how they are able to stop development on sensitive lands. There are uh, also measures to streamline approvals and prevent third party groups from Uh, appealing any kind of development uh, uh, approvals uh, at the municipal level. So here in Toronto, for example, it's very common for uh, large development applications to be appealed to the Ontario Land Tribunal. Some of our listeners may remember it used to be called the Ontario Municipal Board back in the day. Um, Those appeals by third parties, i.e. if you're not either the city or the developer, uh, those are going to be largely eliminated. So like, a residence association is no longer going to have the ability to launch those appeals. Uh, there are other measures. The government is also looking to uh, reduce or cap, or in some cases, uh, eliminate the uh, fees that municipalities charge for new developments in particular. Uh, and this goes to uh, what I was talking about, about some uh, below market rental units. Uh, the government is particularly interested in reducing the fees that uh, affordable housing uh, has to pay. Uh, so. There's really a lot more in this announcement, um, but I'm going to just take a breath there for a second. And uh, (laughs) Well, let me jump in with a
1: question then. Yeah, Yeah, please. Which is, if they're going to cancel those fees for the municipalities, how are the municipalities going to make up those presumably millions and millions of dollars which they've depended on in order
0: to provide services for constituents? There have been two things that have been proposed. Uh, one is, of course, that you know cities still have property taxes, and they might have to raise property taxes to make up some of that difference. That would be uh, deeply unpopular for city councils to, to do. For many, many years, uh, Ontario has operated under the principle that growth should pay for growth, which is to say that new developments help contribute to the costs of infrastructure. Another idea that has been uh, introduced is that some of the federal money that is sloshing around the, the federal government is uh, making substantial financial commitments to housing affordability. The province is saying, well, hey, we will offset some of that lost money with some of the federal money. that." is being made available to the provinces specifically for the purpose of uh, housing affordability.
1: Okay. uh, Now, I appreciate you just got out of the briefing literally minutes before we started recording this podcast. So you may not have had a chance to hear from some opposition critics about what they say. Do you have anything on that?
0: (laughs) Well, uh, certainly we know that uh, in the recent past, you know, all of the opposition parties uh, certainly raised a lot of concerns about the environmental side of these uh, decisions. The Ford government is how to put this, just not as skeptical of suburban sprawl (laughs) as the other opposition parties are. And even if that doesn't touch the Green Belt itself, and and the government does insist that all of the protections for the Green Belt uh, will remain, there's a lot of what you would call sort of green field development in Ontario that is possible, even if you don't get anywhere near the Green Belt itself. And so whether it's technically the Green Belt or not, Mike Schreiner of the Green Party, for example, is not going to love more subdivisions and more sprawl built in areas that are only accessible by highways. Um, and and I think that is one area where the government is going to face a lot of criticism. As much as there's a lot of work here uh, to really drive intensification, especially around uh, transit areas, there's also a lot here that is very likely to contribute to what we would conventionally have called sprawl.
1: What confidence does anybody have that this... Uh, A group of ideas unveiled by the Conservatives are actually going to get the job done.
0: You know, I think so much depends on, like, your mental model of, like, what the housing crisis is. And, you know, I've written before at TVO that, you know, if the thing that is driving the housing crisis is, is a shortage of homes close to the big concentration of jobs in downtown Toronto... Then adding more homes on the suburban periphery uh, where somebody has to drive 90 minutes each day to get to those jobs in the urban core, it doesn't do as much good as intensification downtown would. And so that's one reason why I think I'm a bit skeptical uh, that I'm certainly a bit more skeptical of these measures that I think are going to generate more sprawl. I would have loved to see uh, more effort put into the intensification. Uh, there is a lot here. and. I think the minister called it like one of the 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 most transformative or transformational housing plans that the, the province has seen in a generation and i think he's right i think we might also discover that we're back here a year from now with a new housing plan i'm going to quote from the summit speaker the commission believes that quote premier ford and minister jones would have evidence particularly within their knowledge that would be relevant from the commission's mandate to the commission's mandate that's the end of the quote speaker but this premier and that minister are intent instead on refusing to testify before the commission calling instead for a judicial review of their summons i have a simple question through you what are you trying to hide That's Ottawa MPP Joel Harden at question period, demanding accountability from Premier Doug Ford about his resistance to testifying at the Emergencies Act inquiry. Uh, For our listeners, I will also note that Premier Ford was not in the chamber as uh, Harden was questioning him. Hmm. Well, this past Monday, the inquiry into Prime Minister Justin
1: Trudeau's use of the Emergencies Act summoned Premier Doug Ford and his deputy premier, Sylvia Jones, to testify. But the response from the premier's office was... Mm-mm, not so fast. They want a court to overrule the inquiry on this, as in the premier doesn't want to testify and Sylvia Jones apparently doesn't want to testify either. JMM, I'm not sure I have ever seen a situation in the past where a premier or a senior cabinet minister was asked to testify at a public inquiry and they declined.
0: What's going on here? OK, Steve, we have talked about parliamentary privilege on this podcast before. Uh frankly, a lot more than I ever expected to. Uh, But to bring our listeners up to speed, MPs and MPPs have certain parliamentary privileges that in effect make them uh, above the law on some matters. This is part of the Constitution. It is reflected in provincial law. Uh, One of the well-known privileges is that an MPP cannot be sued for defamation for something they say during proceedings in the legislature. But there are other privileges, and one of them is that MPPs cannot be forced to testify in court for civil matters.
1: Well, hang on a second. This is not a court and this is not a civil lawsuit. This is a public inquiry.
0: Right. But the federal law that created this inquiry, it's called the Inquiries Act, conveniently enough, gives the inquiry the power to compel testimony the same powers, and I'm going to quote from the act here, as is vested in any court of record in civil cases. So. I am not a lawyer, but I think Ontario's lawyers are going to be arguing that since the inquiry only has the powers of any civil proceeding and that MPPs like Ford and Jones cannot be forced to testify in civil proceedings, they can't be forced to testify to the inquiry. And it actually gets even weirder. Oh, do tell. Let's hear more. (laughs) The federal parliament gets to define the privileges for its own members, and the provincial legislatures get to define their own privileges. So even if the wording of the federal law were different, if it somehow gave the inquiry stronger powers to compel testimony even from sitting MPs, It's not clear that the federal law could overrule provincial privileges. Uh, Again, I am not a lawyer, but these are just some of the questions that will undoubtedly be hashed out in court. Uh, I will say, unlike other cases that we've had in the last few years, I, I suspect this will get expedited hearings. So we may not be waiting very long for the courts to respond on this.
1: Hmm. All right. Let's just get everybody caught up in case you haven't been following this, uh, you know, super carefully, because a lot's happened over the past week. Uh, last week, the Public Order Emergency Commission, that's the body created by the Inquiry Act to carry out this whole investigation. That commission revealed what Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had said to the mayor of Ottawa, Jim Watson. And here's the inquiry lawyer questioning Jim Watson on what was said and Watson's response. Have a listen. Doug Ford has been hiding from his responsibility on it for political reasons, as you highlighted, and important that we don't let them get away from that. And we intend to support you on that. So what was your understanding of the political reasons uh, of why Premier Ford, according to the Prime Minister, was hiding from his responsibility? Well, I I can't speculate on on what the Prime Minister said, but I think I shared his frustration that um, they wouldn't participate in the tripartite, uh, we couldn't get a clear answer as to whether they were going to support the number of officers that we needed. Um, and, um, you know, the, the premier did not come to Ottawa during the, uh, the occupation. I think there was a sense by some in the community, why is the premier not here?
0: Other details have also been brought forward, uh, including the, the rift between uh, then Police Chief uh, Peter Slowly and the Police Board Chair uh, Diane Deans. Uh, there was a uh, moment in the uh, testimony where uh, the lawyer for uh, then Chief Slowly seemed to be trying to make the case that, um, in fact, the Police Board was getting uh, information just not the information they they would have preferred uh, here's that clip.
1: you were given details about that plan, I suggest to you daily by Chief slowly um, what days are we talking about? We were seeing more details of a plan as we went on, but for a lot of those twenty days, I did not feel that I was getting detailed information about a plan right and and uh, and I hear you about that okay and 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 what I'm trying to establish <laughs> here is that What you were not satisfied with was the information you were getting, the level of detail you were getting about the operational plan. Now, a reminder, all of this is ultimately trying to figure out, was the federal government justified in invoking the Emergencies Act to begin with to deal with the convoy protests?
0: We discussed this a bit in this week's uh, newsletter, uh, but, you know, Ontario's role... uh, at least one of Ontario's roles, is uh, policing. Uh, local police services uh, do not answer to the mayor. They don't answer to the prime minister. They answer to police service boards, which are provincial agencies. Uh, the Ontario Provincial Police, obviously, is a provincial agency as well. Uh, so, you know, when uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is uh, reported to have said that the province had a role, that it was uh, avoiding its responsibility here, certainly as, as a matter of law, Yes, he's he's absolutely correct. The the province had a huge role to play here. Whether or not Ford has uh, shirked his responsibility, well, you know, that will be another matter uh, for the testimony or for the inquiry rather to, uh, let's say, uh, Uncover, And that would be easier if the premier would testify.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I noticed the OPP got down to Windsor PDQ, as the initials go, uh, when it looked like um, billions of dollars a day of economic activity were going to be held up across that ambassador bridge. So I guess one could conclude that uh, whereas the financial imperative might not have been there as much in Ottawa, it surely was there across the Windsor Detroit Bridge. And when that happened, uh, the provincial government acted quickly. I don't know why the premier is making such a, um, a, I was going to say a federal case, but I guess he's making a provincial case over not testifying. You know, it's not like provincial premiers in this province have not testified before. Uh, Kathleen Wynne, who was premier not that long ago, was brought before a committee of the legislature to testify on electricity issues. Uh, Dalton McGinty was brought before an inquiry, a provincial inquiry on gas plants. He testified there. Uh, Mike Harris. Mike Harris. I uh, had to testify before a royal commission. He wasn't premier anymore, but he was brought forward to testify at a royal commission on uh, the Walkerton water disaster of 20 or so years ago, in which numerous people were killed and the whole water treatment system was poisoned there by, uh, well, a whole bunch of factors we don't have to go into now. And if you want to go back a long way, like, let's go back 75 years. George Drew was the premier of Ontario who was called before a royal commission to testify about organized crime. So it's happened before. And I'm, you know, if one of the arguments is, and I don't know that it is, but if it is, you know, I'm the premier. I don't want to testify. I don't have to testify. There's no tradition of this. Well, that's not the case. There's actually quite a tradition. There's ample evidence to suggest that premiers, have come forward in the past to testify before parliamentary committees or royal commissions to tell what they knew and when they
0: knew it. So there. I would just very quickly add, you mentioned uh, Kathleen Wynne testifying before the legislature. She also, uh, in uh, one court case, waived her privilege as an MPP uh, and testified in in a court proceeding. And of course, I have emphasized before here, the, the privilege that uh, Doug Ford carries as an MPP, Justin Trudeau also has as an MP, he has chosen to testify and uh, speaking with reporters in Ottawa has seemed very enthusiastic to testify. Uh, so privilege can be a reason you do not have to testify. It is not uh, a, a get out of jail free card, maybe not the best choice of words there. But <laughs> it, 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 it does not preclude him from testifying. And with
1: that, I will say that that is the On Poly podcast for Wednesday, October 26, 2022. Thanks for your patience for us this week, everybody. You know, of course, we wanted to go a day late so we could get all this information about the municipal election results in.
0: A reminder to check out our newsletters. Uh, As I said, we went a bit deeper into the Emergencies Act inquiry this week. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash newsletters.
1: And any feedback that you've got, we're happy to hear it, good, bad or indifferent. Write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org.
0: This week's episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb, edited by Matthew O'Mara, additional reporting by Justin Chandler. Our managing editor is Shair Tajviti.
1: COVID is not over yet, people, so let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Going to go to bed early tonight, Steve. (laughs) Good for you. Feel better, pal.